0: Luke 23, 50 through 56. Um, now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been, had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The woman who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be to you.
1: take an opportunity once again to say thank you for uh, Pastor Appreciation Month, for all of the words of encouragement, the gifts, and simply the blessing that it is to be a part of this congregation. Uh, some of the kids, uh, for Christ First Kids, uh, when they met, they, they filled out some little, little sheets and wrote some encouraging notes and things that they like about this church, and one of them said, I love when we say the Apostles' Creed, which just, that gets me right here. That's just, that's a big part of why we do it, because for kids, they soak up that stuff like a, a sponge. It's, it's fundamentals of the faith that just stick with them for life, and it's something they can participate in as well. Um, and isn't it interesting that the Creed has this line, he was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. Have you ever wondered why the burial of Jesus makes it into the Apostles' Creed as we just recited it together? There's this statement of really, here's the the important things to know about Christianity. The Creed is following the Bible here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul lists things that he calls of first importance, and he says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. What, what's the significance of the burial of Jesus that makes it worth considering in Scripture and in our confession as a, a, a matter of such importance? And what do we learn by considering the burial in its own right? In other words, another way to ask the question, why am I preaching on this text by itself instead of just tacking it on either to the resurrection next week or uh, the uh, crucifixion? death of Christ this past week and in one sense Luke is including some details here that are kind of like backstory that'll set up uh, some of the things that he'll talk about in the coming passages about the resurrection but it's not just set up and backstory Uh, so today we'll consider uh, the actions of the man and these women who cared for Jesus body and burial and uh, what Luke is showing us there. And then turn to consider the significance of Christ's burial itself. So first, uh, so if you're taking notes, those are the two basic sections. Uh, My uh, subsection here for this first one, I've called it God's Undertakers, which I think is kind of cute and clever, but you, you don't have to put that in there. I'm just proud of myself, so I had to share this. But, you know, what do we learn from the folks who care for the body of Christ after he's crucified? And there's a few things to see about them. They are unexpected people, not the kind of people, especially not Joseph of Arimathea, that you expect to suddenly take on a favorable role. So we saw last week's text that the followers of Jesus, including the women in this passage, as after Jesus had died, they are just standing at a distance and watching as Jesus died. They don't seem to know what to do. The person who finally acts at that point is very much unexpected. He's a a wealthy member of that same Jewish council that had plotted and pleaded for Jesus' death. This man, Joseph of Arimathea. Up to this point, uh, you might forgive someone for mistakenly thinking that Luke is just trying to bash all of the Jewish leaders and all wealthy people, all council members. Because Luke's account has really painted them in a very negative light, to say the least. Luke is a favorite book, in fact, of, for people who want to read into scripture some kind of Marxist agenda or eat the rich kind of vibe. Uh, they're wrong, of course, but you can see why they would attribute that to Luke or turn to Luke. Luke does emphasize Jesus' care for the, the poor and the downtrodden, and uh, including, you know women and and others and his criticism of the, the wealthy and the powerful and the marginalized if we want to put it that way so it's unexpected at this point that a rich council member is the one who steps up to do the right thing at the right moment and take care of Jesus body just as you maybe were starting to think okay, it's not the Pharisees that are good people, it's the, the Pharisees are bad people, all of them bad people, that's the kind of bad person, it, it gets turned on its head. Not that we know necessarily Joseph was a, was a Pharisee, but he was a member of the council. And If you started thinking that, well, well, you're wrong. So the mini lesson there, as soon as we start thinking this person cannot possibly belong to team Jesus, this kind of person, God's word is there to correct us. Well, anyway... Luke tells us that this Joseph is a good and righteous man that he had not consented to the action of the council to their to their plot to kill Jesus he had not agreed to it or agreed with it and that he was looking for the kingdom of God Now the gospel of John tells us also uh, that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus says but secretly for fear of the Jews so he was a secret follower of Jesus and that maybe sounds makes him sound cowardly to our ears you know you needed to stand and be counted um, but the Word of God calls him good and righteous and we really don't know the details of his interaction with the council while they were making these decisions so we shouldn't be too hasty to judge you know the The fury of Jesus' enemies plus the certain plan of God to send his son to the cross meant that Joseph was not going to be successful in swaying the council's decision by having some kind of Mr. Smith goes to Washington sort of moment or I guess Mr. of Arimathea goes to Jerusalem. But God had still a job for Joseph to do after the death of Jesus, to care for his body may have heard this before in messages, but typically crucified bodies were not given a proper burial. Uh, A dishonorable burial was considered part of the shame that comes from crucifixion. Uh, If if you tend to be a little bit mind over matter, the body doesn't matter at all, you might think who cares what happens to the the body, but they very much cared what happened to their remains and that they should be treated honorably. Uh, So, while it wasn't unheard of in special circumstances for bodies of crucified people to be released for burial, it wasn't the norm. the norm was for them to be just kind of thrown away or even just really left on the cross to be eaten by vultures, maggots. So Joseph intervenes and he's able to intervene because he is a wealthy, reputable member of the council and as well as a secret disciple, he has access to Pilate to get the body, and he has the clout to have his request granted and uh, being wealthy, he owns a fitting burial place for Jesus, a tomb where no one has laid been laid before. So this is the first thing to, to note about him, other than that he's unexpected, is that he is honoring Jesus. He is acting with the intent to honor Jesus. Great personal risk and cost. So he honors God's Son. And then we also see that he honors. God's word. Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23, you can turn there on your own or you don't have to, but it basically says that a man who has been executed and and cannot stay hanging up on a tree overnight, it defiles the land. So uh, Joseph of Arimathea is acting in accordance with what the word of God had said. Uh, He also, maybe he's aware of it, maybe he's not, but he's also honoring Psalm 16, verse 10, which is a prophecy that says, God will not let his Holy One see corruption. So he's taking action to to care for the body. Uh, Paul quotes that same Psalm, by the way, in Luke chapter 13. Uh, It is important that Jesus' body is not left up until the third day to be pecked at by birds. So Joseph of Arimathea's actions are part of how God fulfills that prophecy that his son's body even would not see corruption and decay. So he's acting to honor God's son and follow God's word. And his action, of course, opens up the door for uh, the women that we'll meet here. We've actually met them already. Opens the door for them. they had been watching from a distance in last week's passage, They're named among the crowd of Jesus' acquaintances who are just standing there not knowing what to do, but Joseph's actions open the door for them to make their own plans to honor Jesus. Uh, We see that they follow to the place where Jesus has been laid by by Joseph, and then they return to prepare the spices and ointments. They didn't do embalming, but this is the closest thing they, they would do to cover the stench of death and, and honor, care for the body. Uh, but they're unable to apply any of those things to the body of Christ because the Sabbath is approaching. Uh, that's the point here in verse 54. It's the day of preparation. The Sabbath was beginning. Uh, if you remember last week's passage, uh, Jesus died at about the ninth hour. And the Jewish clock divided the day into 12 hours. Interestingly enough, no matter what time of year it was, it was always 12 hours. Uh, dawn is the, the first hour, noon is the sixth hour, um, so they just adjusted the length of the hour depending on uh, what time of, of year it was. So if you don't like daylight savings time, it could be more complicated than that, it could be worse. Um, so Sunday, sundown was about the 12th hour, and remember that also by their reckoning, that's when the Sabbath begins. The next day begins at sundown. So. And on the Sabbath, they have to rest. They cannot carry these spices and ointments to the grave. That would be considered doing work. So Jesus just died. That means that they've got three hours, roughly, for Joseph to get approval from Pilate, get help taking the body of Jesus down, wash the body, wrap it in cloth, take it to the grave. All of this had to be done quickly. Uh, The women at that point only had time to prepare the spices and ointments for Jesus' body, and then they have to rest on the Sabbath and come back on Sunday morning, as we know, as we'll hear about next week. And I won't say a whole lot more about the women because their story isn't over yet. We'll hear more about them again next week. But ultimately what we see at this point is that just like Joseph, they are unexpected people. Uh, for women to have such a major role in this story, in that culture, and especially the role that they're about to play as the first witnesses to the resurrection, that's unexpected given the general attitude toward women at the time. And like Joseph, they are honoring God's son, seeking to care for the body of Jesus, and they are following God's word by resting on the Sabbath. I'm not going to get into the issue of You know, the Sabbath today, I'm not saying that it carries over in a one-to-one comparison. Obviously, it's Sunday, we're not meeting on Saturday. Um, All kinds of things there that I'm just not touching, but I'm just saying they honored God's Son, and they honored God's Word. So as we consider the actions of those who cared for the body of Christ, that's what we see, unexpected people who we now... Are talking about today thousands of years later simply because they sought to honor Jesus and to honor the Word of God using the means and the opportunity that were in front of them, and they did so in the darkest of circumstances where nobody seemed to know nobody else seemed to know what to do and I, I think there's something that we can learn from there we often do face desperate times right um, We're told that the times that we're living in are desperate times. Maybe because of the the culture wars or the conflict between Christianity, secular opponents. People talk about the rise of secularism. Maybe we think about the desperate times globally and the, the wars and conflicts abroad. Or maybe it's just desperate circumstances in your own life. And I think the danger when the times start feeling desperate is we start thinking, well, desperate times call for desperate measures right maybe you feel it in your own personal desperate circumstances things looks so bad so stressful that you need to do just whatever whatever works we definitely see it in some of the cultural commentary sometimes even from christian teachers who maybe are well-intentioned but might give the impression that turn the other cheek and love your enemy, That's, that stuff's great when the world is being nice to us, but this is war right now and desperate times call for desperate measures. Well, I don't know how to quantify level of desperation, but I might suggest that there's never been a time as desperate and uncertain for followers of Christ as when Jesus has just Died. The Christ has just died on a Roman cross. The sun went down at noon. Temple curtain was ripped in two. There's all these cosmic signs, frightening signs of of judgment. The Son of God has just breathed his last. No one understands it at that point. But what that desperate moment called for was not Peter drawing his sword and lashing out. It didn't seem to call for desperate measures at all. The more I think about it, Joseph of Arimathea might be one of my favorite people in the Bible. He had just this kind of calm wisdom that's not easy to find, to see what needs to happen here. He, he saw that that desperate moment called for the same thing that every moment calls for. He faced a desperate moment, and what did he do? He sought to honor God's Son and follow God's word. And did that take courage? Absolutely it did. He had to go to Pilate. And once word spreads that Joseph has done this, he's no longer going to be a secret disciple. This is risky. This is costly. This did take both courage and conviction. But he's not doing anything different or, or has no other real goal here other than simply following God's word as he seeks to honor God's son. So it isn't that God never calls us to do anything extraordinary, but. Whatever he calls us to, to do, we're going to find that by digging down into those two things. Desire to honor God's son and a devotion to following God's word. And if you take away one of those things, by the way, the results are catastrophic. What happens if you say you want to honor Christ, but you're not devoted to following God's word? Well, what Christ are you going to honor if it's not the one that's revealed in, in his word? Well, it's, it's going to be the Christ of your own invention, right? Right. You'll end up following not the Christ revealed in scripture, but a Christ of of your own design. It leads to, we might call, some, some form of theological liberalism. But on the other hand, what happens if you devote yourself to scripture, but not in a desire to honor God's son? Well, you end up with some kind of, again, for lack of a better word, maybe a fundamentalism or some kind of craziness, maybe some kind of legalism. I'm not trying to honor Christ. I'm just trying to keep certain laws and build my own righteousness or it might be a crazy obsession with end times prophecy or it's some kind of view that fails to recognize that the things of Christ are the things of first importance you end up treating the bible like a buffet of options so you pick whatever ultimately interests you make that central instead of Christ so when we face dark and difficult times and even before then as we should all be preparing to face dark and difficult times, what is crucial for us is to hold fast to this desire to honor God's Son and a devotion to following God's Word. And if by grace of God we have a genuine heart to honor God's Son and stay true to God's Word in whatever opportunities and relationships are given to us, then I think we've got what we need, whether the times are desperate or not. So then that means something that I said at the start of a sermon uh, several weeks ago that our first task as disciples the primary way that in which we grow is to grow in our esteem for Christ do you want to be prepared for hardship there's no preparation more vital than growing in your desire to honor Jesus and Jesus or Joseph's rather his, his, his beautiful deed here. It appears in all four Gospels, I think, as a fitting response to the cross of Christ. Jesus was obedient to the point of death. He bore the judgment of God for sin. His perfect righteousness, perfect love was on display. And the desire to honor Jesus is stirred up not by introspection into ourselves or trying to put it there on our own, but by looking to Jesus. The best way to grow in our honor, honor for Jesus, our esteem for Jesus, is just to look at him as he is and see his perfect righteousness and, and love and, and holiness. You want to appreciate a sunset, you go look at a sunset, right? You don't lock yourself in a closet and try to imagine the sunset or stir up desire for sunsets, right? So we turn now then to look at the work that Christ has done for us and how his burial fits into that work. And back to that question earlier, why does the Apostles' Creed include the burial of Jesus along with this descent to the dead, which is a whole other can of worms I could spend some time explaining, but I won't. But yeah, However we interpret that phrase, why does Paul include the burial of Jesus and his, his list of things as first importance in 1 Corinthians 15? Well, the key point here, is that Jesus was genuinely and truly dead. He was not just mostly dead, he was all dead. He's not pining for the fjords or just tired after a long cry of dereliction. He has passed on, he is a stiff, bereft of life, he rests in peace. His metabolic processes are now history. He's kicked the bucket, shuffled off the mortal coil, run down the curtain... And join the choir invisible, and why is that significant? Other than the fact that it gives me an opportunity to work the dead parrot sketch into my preaching, well, it's significant for a few reasons. It, it does argue against what's called the swoon theory. This idea you may have heard of that Jesus didn't really die; he just sort of fainted or faked his own death in order to be resuscitated later. Maybe Luke the physician gave him some kind of medication or drugs, like Romeo and Juliet, to you know uh, fake his death. Although, you know, if somebody's into that theory, they're just going to say that Luke and maybe the other gospel writers are either in on the conspiracy or duped by it. But but for us, the fact that Jesus genuinely died is part of the gospel message. If the wages of sin is death, it was necessary for our Savior to endure a genuine human death. The burial of Jesus shows us that Jesus not only experienced a moment of dying, but endured for a time in the state of death. Whatever it means, whatever it looks like for human beings to be dead, that's what it was like for Jesus. He became a dead human being. If I can get theological for a little bit, uh, the historic Christian teaching, of course, which I believe reflects the teaching of Scripture, is that Christ is one person with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. It's called hypostatic union, very difficult, of course, we can't fully comprehend it, but each of those natures, divine nature and human nature, is complete and distinct. There's not somehow mixed together, blended together to make Jesus a hybrid between man and God, like a demigod. Uh, He is one person who is both fully and truly 100% God and at the same time fully and truly 100% man. Each nature is complete, not lacking anything, and yet having these two natures doesn't somehow pull him apart into two persons as if there are two beings that just happen to work alongside each other he remains one person and his divine and human natures are inseparably bound together by virtue of the fact that christ is one human person now that is a mouthful and a lot to wrap your head around but if we take away from it or tweak it we create problems if jesus isn't fully and truly god then what are we doing worshiping him how can he reveal god's glory make god known to us But at the same time, if he's not truly and fully man, how can he suffer and die in our place? And if he's something between God and man, a mix, then he's not really God or man, but a new secret third thing. And if he's two separate beings, then there really is no incarnation at all. There's just still God and a man, side by side. So that's what we call hypostatic union, the incarnation of Christ. In a nutshell, why am I talking about all of this? Well, when we say Jesus died, we mean that in his human nature, he endured a human death. Whatever it means for humans to be dead, that is the state into which the man of Jesus Christ entered and existed from his death on Good Friday until the resurrection on Easter morning. The Westminster Larger Catechism is a, a catechism just means like a teaching tool. It comes from the English Reformation in the 1600s, but Uh, Here's what they had to say about the death of Jesus. Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his being buried and continuing in the state of the dead and under the power of death till the third day, which hath otherwise been expressed. In these words, he descended into hell. And we translate it descended into dead. Uh, The Apostles' Creed there is what that quote is from. When the Creed was first translated into English, my understanding is the word hell could be used in more of a generic way to refer to the afterlife, the realm of the dead in general, not specifically to a place of torment for the wicked as we use it now. But to put all of this another way, Jesus didn't stop being human between his death and resurrection. His human nature was not just a physical body that he left behind and took up again, as if he stopped being human when he died, just went back to being God, and then was incarnate again after he was raised from the dead. He continued to exist as a human being, just a dead one, which which does lead to the implication, which is even more difficult for us to understand, that Jesus had a human body and a human soul so this is why I skipped some of the dead parrot lines, if you're familiar with the Monty Python sketch. I didn't say this rabbi is no more, he has ceased to be. This is an ex-rabbi because on Holy Saturday, Jesus was still a man, just, again, a dead one. And that, again, raises questions for us, questions about the intermediate state, What when we're dead but still waiting for the resurrection of the body, what, what is it like then? Raises questions about, How can Jesus have not only a human body, but a human soul, and not be two persons? And if Jesus' human soul went to the place of the righteous dead, what was he up to at that time? Those are excellent questions, which I'd love to talk about, but we just don't have time. You'll have to either see me afterward or wait until this sermon comes out on Blu-ray or DVD for the extended cut, which isn't going to happen, but... The fact that Jesus endured a genuine human death, whatever that means, it transforms the Christian attitude toward death. Finally get to what some of this means for us here. If you read through the Old Testament, you might notice it doesn't give us a clear picture that we think of as departing to be with God. A few psalms will even say things like, in death there is no remembrance of you, God. And Sheol, who will give you praise? Who's going to give you praise in the grave? It's a rhetorical question, but the, the attitude, there's not a lot of expectation there or hope. In the light of the fact that death in Genesis is part of the curse that separates us from God, there's a kind of a question mark though there are hints of a resurrection here and there. And yet in the New Testament, New Testament writers can say things like, to die is gain. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. It is better to depart and be with Christ. And what changed? You know, Some will say it's this Greek idea of the immortality of the soul getting mixed in here um, and But for the New Testament writers, I think the decisive factor is the death of Christ Jesus. Um, What really clinched it for them is is the fact that God himself, God the Son, became a human being and endured death in this state of death. Think of the criminal who was crucified next to Christ. We met him a couple weeks ago, and Jesus told him famously, Today you will be with me in paradise. And paradise, by the way, can refer to back to the garden of eden or look forward to the new creation but often it simply refers to the afterlife the place where the righteous dead go when they die again we call this sometimes the intermediate state but if this man was there with jesus nearly 2000 years ago it means that jesus in his death still god incarnate took the presence of god into the grave just as surely as he had taken the presence of god into the manger, and in so doing, all who had died in faith beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. In the words of Bela Lugosi, to die, to be really dead, that must be glorious. Of course, he was playing Dracula, and it was just because he was undead, but for us, those who die in faith in Christ enter into the presence of his glory. That means for us, death truly is gain. Jesus is, of course, no longer dead. Spoiler alert uh, for future sermons. Christ is risen. But his defeat and transformation of death still remains for those who, like that condemned criminal, put their faith in him. Those like Paul, the great persecutor of the church, who turned to trust in Christ for his righteousness, and who famously said he came to desire to depart this life and be with the risen Lord Jesus. I've talked about this before. You know, death isn't our our final hope. We look for the resurrection of the body and the life of the age to come, the world to come. But the resurrection itself really isn't our highest hope. Hope. Our highest hope is to be with Christ. And for that, we don't have to wait for the resurrection. That's why Paul can say death is gain. So that's the the gospel application for us of the work that Christ has done for us in enduring death. The state of death is now glorified because Christ endured it. To die in faith is to enter into the presence of our risen Lord. Death is an uncomfortable Topic. We've been talking about it. We sang like four verses about it. That was pretty uncomfortable. But we do need to think about it. We do need to remember that each of us will one day face death if Christ doesn't return first. And we, if, he does, if the Lord tarries, as they say, we don't know which of us will go next. It could be any of us. None of us knows how many days we have left. It's not wise to Avoid facing that reality, to continue to continue to pretend that your life will never end. Someone once said that Christianity is nothing if it's not a way of thinking about death, that Christian worship ought to prepare us for our encounter with death. And the preparation is this, that because Jesus died and rose again, we don't need to avoid the topic. No guilt in life, no fear in death. We can have comfort when facing the hour of death, knowing that Christ has gone before us. Wherever we go, whatever it is like, Christ has endured before us. He leads us where he himself has gone. And not only has he endured it, but he has transformed it. Whatever else the intermediate state might be. It is an entrance into the presence of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus, the one who loves us and gave himself for us. So that's our hope this morning. That's what this passage is telling us. This comfort that we have even in the face of death, knowing what Christ has done for us, we are able to Even if the world doesn't think much of us, we're unexpected people. And yet, if we simply, knowing what Christ has done for us, uh, seek to honor him, seek to follow his word, we are free to do that, knowing that even in death, we are safely in his hands. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and we give you the glory. Your plan, your ways are beyond our imagining. That from the moment our first parents rebelled against you, there, embedded within the curse itself, was the means for our redemption from the curse. That one would come, the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head even while having his own heel bruised, even while enduring that self-same curse of death, he would redeem us from the power of death, from the power of sin, and one day even from the presence of sin. We thank you that we have so great a Savior who has redeemed us from our greatest fear by enduring it in our place, redeemed us from death, saved us from judgment so that we can say the craziest thing if it weren't true, which it is, that death for us is gain. Help us to live with our eyes and our hearts fixed on that reality. Through your spirit, give us assurance of this truth. Help us to trust the word that you have spoken and live our lives accordingly, honoring you, following your word, so that you might be glorified. In us, we ask these things in the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen.